Hello and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History. This episode is a special episode um, which uh, is being hosted jointly with the Cricket Society. The BSSH and the Cricket Society set up a new award last year called the Howard Milton Prize for Cricket History. And I'm very pleased to say that I have an interview with the winner of this year's award, the uh, fantastic cricket historian um, Ramachandra Guha. Um, Ram was very uh, generous with his time and uh, we had a wonderful chat about um, his cricket writing but also other strands of his career as a, uh, a historian of India, a historian of the environment and as a, a public intellectual. But first I'll hand over to Raf Nicholson, the chair of the BSSH, who made the announcement of the award at the Society's Conference this year in Twickenham. Now we come to the announcement of our Howard Milton Award, um, which is a joint award with the Cricket Society, um, awarded annually to a person or persons who have made an outstanding or unsung contribution to cricket scholarship. And the award seeks to recognise good cricket writing and research, whether of an academic or a popular nature. Um, and the winners are decided on the recommendations of a panel drawn from um, BSSH and the Cricket Society. Um, so I'm delighted to announce that the winner of our 2021 Howard Milton Award um, is Ram Guha, um, an esteemed historian of Indian cricket um, whose most recent work is the Commonwealth of Cricket. We'll be inviting Ram to give a keynote at next year's BSSH conference, so congratulations to him. Um, there we go. Okay, so it's my um, great honour to um, to welcome uh, Ramachandra Guha to the Sporting History Podcast, uh, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History. And it's also a great honour to announce that um, Ram is the recipient of the Howard Milton Award for Cricket Scholarship for this year, which was just announced at the BSSH conference. So congratulations, Ram. Thanks, Jeff. It's a great privilege and an honour to be... Uh, to have your work recognized, particularly by one's peers. So I'm very pleased indeed with the Howard Middleton Award. Yeah, and um, I was just talking to Ram before we kind of started the recording here about um, his landmark work, which was a corner of a foreign field, which was published in 2002. And I'm sure I'm not the only um, sports historian who has read that book with pleasure, but also with slight envy because it's the scholarship is so good and the, and the style is, is so, um, so readable. Um, can you tell me how you first started on the project of um, a corner of a foreign field? So, Jeff, there's a there's a kind of prehistory to it, which particularly for your uh, British members or non-Indian members in general, I should say a little bit about. My first cricket book was actually published ten years before a corner of a foreign field, and it was a fans' book about cricket. It was not a historian's book. It was called Wickets in the East, and it was about Ranji Trophy teams. It was followed two years later in 1994 by a second slim fans book celebrating the great cricketers of the 1970s whom I had grown up watching and admiring. So I had, and then shortly afterwards, I started a fortnightly cricket column uh, in uh, the Hindu newspaper of uh, Chennai, one of our leading newspapers, English newspapers, where I wrote about great matches. If a famous player died, I mourned his death, I marked anniversaries. I wrote about the ducks Bradman had made rather than about his centuries and so on and so forth. So I had kind of 
to parallel careers, Jeff. I had a kind of a weekend career as a cricket fan writing about the game I love. And during the week, I wrote scholarly works on ecology, politics, and so on and so forth. And it so happened that the great hero of Colombo uh, Foreign Field is a character called Palwankar Balu, whom I knew of from my cricketing fandom as India's first top class spin bowler. Uh, and then in the course of my academic research, I also discovered that he was a public figure. He came from a Dalit or untouchable background and had played a part in a very important um, controversy in Indian political history, which was about affirmative action for untouchables. So I was kind of gobsmacked. I said, hey, this great cricketer is also a public figure. And then my two worlds began to meet, the world of a historian and the world of a cricket fan. And I began to see sport not merely in terms of aesthetic pressure, but in terms of reflecting the prejudices, passions, and of course, divisions and fault lines within Indian society. That's how Conor Foreign Field was born. Yeah, that's that was definitely what I got from the reading of it because I read it just this week. Um, that kind of intersection between the practice of sport, but also its social impact and the way in which it can um, promote um, people's careers or people up society or or close them off as well. And so, one of the great um, themes of your work is the development of the quadrangular pentangular tournament in in Bombay or Mumbai as it is now, and how this tournament. Um, was quite controversial in India. Maybe you can explain some more about what the tournament was and why it was so controversial, especially in the 30s and 40s. So, Jeff, uh, uh, the origins of this tournament, which was Indian cricket's premier first-class tournament. There was no Ranji Trophy before 1935. And top-class cricket in India was born by teams organised by racial or religious lines. So the Parsis, who were the most westernised of Indian communities, mostly based in Bombay, started seeing British soldiers play cricket and took the game themselves. And then the Hindus emulated the Parsis and the Muslims emulated uh, the Hindus in a spirit of comparative rivalry. And the British liked to organize Indians in terms of communities. They didn't like identifying individuals, indi Indians as individuals with distinctive histories. They clubbed them under these categories, Parsi, Hindu, Muslim, which were partly artificial and partly rare. Uh, and that's how the tournament arose. It was played every year in Mumbai. It was fiercely competed for. Uh, you know, there were uh, daily reports on it in the newspapers all across India. There was live radio commentary. There was extraordinary excitement before the tournament on things like team selection and, you know, uh, who would be captain, which, uh, which team had the better chance, and so on and so forth. So it was really uh, Indian cricket took at least in terms of competitiveness and quality, really took shape through the quadrangular, which in the year 1935 became a pentangular for the reason that suddenly it was found that there were some first-class Christians who were Indians, uh, who had no place in these four categories. And the simp simplest uh, solution would have been to let them play for the European team, but racial brownies did not allow it. So a fifth catch-all category called the rest was created, which comprised Indian Christians, as well as Jews and a few Buddhists from Sri Lanka, who also played in this tournament. So it's rather odd, odd kind of a uh, hold, hold all, catch all category. Uh, and that's, and it was, this was played on the Bombay Madan, uh, which many of you know, 
and with shamianas and you know great excitement and barracking and slogans and cartoons so and uh, i mostly i mostly researched this tournament through the local newspapers in fact as a historian uh, in my professional work i normally used either government records or private manuscripts and letters but cricketers don't they had no they weren't leaving letters behind and it was newspapers that documented what was going on including the politics of cricket was really covered very closely in the different newspapers of the time and that those were my main resources and what i found really interesting was the way in which this tournament which was became famous throughout india didn't it became a, a tournament that was followed um, across india how this kind of began to conflict with the aspirations of the congress party or indian nationalists who kind of positioned the ranji trophy as a rival uh, kind of competition to it and there's this struggle between the two in the 30s and 40s can you kind of expand on that for me yeah. so uh, essentially i mean um, so there's a uh, there's i mean my if i may again give a slightly expansive answer uh, the four master categories of my book are race caste religion and nation so i start with the racial politics of cricket uh, and how the british colonized the best sporting fields in bombay and the natives had to play on really badly managed and badly maintained turf wickets then i move to caste which is the story of the palwankar brothers this family untouchable family of untouchable cricketers who really had to struggle very hard to get recognition for their feats then i come to religion which is the politics between hindus and muslims now the congress party which was the main vehicle of the indian freedom struggle and whose leaders included such people as gandhi and nehru wanted a composite inter religious nation in which there was no discrimination on the basis of gender caste or indeed religion now once you had a muslim team that legitimized the demand for a separate muslim homeland of pakistan so in the 1930s and 40s uh, when the congress was strongly challenged by a rival party called the muslim league representing the muslim minority of india and the muslim league said we can't live with hindus in a single country we'll be dominated by them we'll be swamped by them because not only are they uh, greater in numbers they have a disproportionate share of economic wealth they control the professions so we need our own space in which to develop now at that stage the congress party and gandhi thought hey this cricket tournament run on religious lines is feeding into the demand for for a separate pakistan and gandhi came out in the early 1940s to um, ask for it to be stopped but by that time really the tournament had run its course but it was quite clear particularly after the end of the second world war 1945 that pakistan would be created and of course that even in cricketing terms it was the ranji trophy played between different provinces of india not between different religions that was now the real showpiece tournament hmm. and um you kind of mentioned uh, the early stage of your book where you talk about the relationship between the british and the indians and i I recently interviewed another historian of Indian cricket um Prashant Kidambi who's also written about those early tours the Parsi tour to England in 1911 um what I found really interesting about your work and Prashant's work is the way that you use um 
the work of the historian and cricket historian Franji Patel, who who was one of the sponsors of that tour, I believe. I mean, you you talking about archives just now and how cricketers don't tend to leave behind um, archives during that period. Um, was Patel one of the kind of key witnesses for the early for the early days of Indian cricket? So, uh, Jeff, uh, Franji Patel was a Parsi. And the Parsis were the most westernized community in India and also the most literate and educated. And it's not surprising that they left behind the first cricket histories. Apart from Framji Patel's book, uh, there's another book by a Parsi called Shapurji Sorabji, which talks about the conflict between cricket and polo, which I found actually extraordinarily fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, the Europeans played polo. Uh, and uh, after they played polo, they left um, the turf that had been dug up by the horses' hooves for the cricketers to play, Indian cricketers to play on the same ground. And there was a decades-long campaign by Indian cricketers to say, Europeans cannot play polo on our field because the quality of the wickets is, you know, it was kind of not just fair play, but it was an argument about conditions, you know, the, the, the appropriate conditions on which cricket can and should be played. So the Parsis were really both cricketers and writers. And these two historians, whom both Prashant and I have used quite extensively, left behind these fascinating records. Partly, Shapurji is mostly about conflict between European polo players and Indian cricketers. And Framji Patel, a more kind of standard narrative documentary history of the growth of Indian cricket. Yeah, and it really acts as a metaphor for the British relationship with India, doesn't it? The way in which they kind of control physical space um, in the city absolutely yeah yeah and it's, it's such a powerful way to um to start the book um but of course later on in in that book you also describe the developing relationship between india and pakistan and the way in which cricket becomes kind of instrumentalized as a kind of a, a unifying force in india but also maybe slightly aggressively as well um it, how absolutely. does that take absolutely. off yeah so as i said the four kind of master categories chronologically are race, which is the late 19th century, caste, which is the first two decades of the 20th century, religion, which is the third and fourth decade of the 20th century. And then in 1947, India and Pakistan become independent as sovereign but opposed nations. And then nation takes over. So nationalism is the fourth master category of my book. Uh, the growth of the sport in the 50s and 60s, the identification of sporting victory with national triumph, and correspondingly with sporting defeat, with national humiliation, and how, though cricket in India always evokes nationalistic, even jingoistic feelings, the most intense parochial passions uh, come to the fore when India plays Pakistan. You know, its twin from whom it was separated at birth in 1947. And there really, there's some really very ugly manifestations of sporting nationalism when India plays Pakistan, which I described uh, in one of the latest chapters of my book. Mm. And um, so turning to um, your more recent publications, uh, this year you published uh, The Commonwealth of Cricket, um, which is uh, about contemporary cricket really, isn't it? Or No, or at least it's part memoir and then part contemporary cricket. It's really interesting. And I found the early section fascinating because you talk about your, your youth in Bangalore and the players that you used to watch when when you were a child and when you were um, an adolescent. What's your earliest memory of cricket? Um, 
before you had all of these social and political things going on in your head when you were watching the game? What's your kind of innocent remembrances of cricket? So, as I said in my book, the first match I watched when it was when I was four. Uh, I grew up uh, in a small sub Himalayan town called Dehradun. Uh, and it was my father was playing that match. And I, I was told I was there, but I have no memories. The first uh, kind of visual memory I have is of when I was about six, of a team coming from Saranpur, which is across the hills, a neighboring town, and a, an opening batsman hitting a six over the trees and then the rain coming, you know, that's kind of, uh, <laughs> and it's vivid in my mind. Then I would spend my summers in Bangalore in South India, which was a much larger town than Dehradun and had a much more established cricketing tradition, where my uncle Dore, who's my maternal uncle, who's really the hero of the early chapters of the book, ran a cricket club, which had several Ranji Trophy players playing for it, and which played against other first-class teams or first-division teams, which had test players like Prasanna, Vishwanath, Chandrasekhar. So, in as a teenager, spending my summers in Bangalore, I came face to face with really the greats of Indian cricket and came to venerate them and worship them. And in one of my early fans books on cricket, uh, I use an epigraph from Ian Peebles, the, the English Rispin and cricket writer, where he says, there are no cricketers like those seen through 12 year old eyes. And I was 12 when I saw G.R. Vishwanath bat and Erapali Prasanna bowl for the first time. So they always will have that very special hallowed place in, 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 you know, in my mind. And uh, so the book kind of then moves through my coming to appreciate cricketers from other countries. And actually, it has two chapters uh, on cricketers from uh, abroad. And I'm particularly proud of the chapter on Pakistani cricketers, because despite all our political and national rivalries, you know, there's much to admire about the cricketers from Pakistan. And then, of course, it ends with my accidental, uh, very, really uh, strange tenure in the belly of the beast being tasked by the Supreme Court to try and clean up Indian cricket, a task in which I, of course, failed lamentably. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the section on Javid Miandad in your book, I really enjoyed that because I remember watching him on television when I suppose it would have been the early 80s when I was about yeah, 10, 11, 12. And um, I'd never, you know, I, I was, I grew up in a very um, rural part of England and I'd never seen players like that, you know, <laughs> um, because they only came once, once every three or four years in those days. So that was probably the first time I'd seen a Pakistan team. And Miandad was amazing. He, he batted all summer. It felt like he batted all summer that we couldn't get him out. And I really enjoyed the way that you gave some depth to my knowledge of Miandad, because you really go into the style of his play and, um, and what, how significant he was for Pakistan at that time. And what I also um, found really interesting is like the enthusiasm that you write about the game um, in, in this book, but also then the kind of explaining your experience with the IPL and, um, and the um, board of inquiry that you were on, the uh, LODA committee, I think, which you were appointed to in 2017. Having read that section of the book, what I wanted to ask you is how do you keep your enthusiasm for cricket in the face of some fairly cynical operators who... Um, who, who... Well, I think uh, I, of course, went through a phase of disenchantment when I was in the Supreme Court appointed committee, which followed the Loda committee recommendations. And, you know, I, we, there were a few intense months where I tried to, 
to get some best practices implemented and fail. But then fortunately, Jeff, because I have a life outside cricket, you know, my main work is outside cricket. I could, rather than being, rather than the game meaning everything to me, you know, for example, if I was a full-time cricket journalist who had been appointed to that committee, I'd been much more embittered and soured by that experience. But I kind of took it in my stride. Also because of, of my work as a political and social historian, I know that cricket is only a game, you know. Uh, Inter-religious violence is much more, or inter-caste violence is much more problematic for a country than losing a cricket match. But uh, it took me a year or two for me to uh, get back my love of the game. And I must confess that I actually, this, I actually watch, I actually enjoy watching uh, club cricket, young kids of 17 and 18 making their mark in the Bangalore first division, and or watching a, a test match in which India is not playing. As compared to a match in which India is playing. You know, the older one gets, the less nationalistic one becomes. And if India is not playing, unfortunately, Indian commentators are incredibly jingoistic. You put on the telly and India is playing, and every ball, the partisanship of the commentator is so nakedly visible. You know, it's not as if Australian and English and West Indian commentators are not partisan. They also want their team to win. But they don't wear their partisanship on their sleeve in that way. So it kind of spoils one's enjoyment. Whereas if, you know, New Zealand is playing South Africa, one is not emotionally invested in the game and one just enjoys the aesthetics of it, right? So that, so I've, and, or if one is watching one's club play or watching a running trophy match, again, the kind of ugly nationalism that marks international cricket uh, doesn't come into uh, the picture at all. So I, I have certainly got back my love of watching cricket. You know, I think it was wonderful last year during the pandemic when uh, England played West Indies uh, and then England played Pakistan after that. And it was wonderful for me, for me as an Indian uh, with all the gloom and despair around me caused by the pandemic uh, to switch on the telly at 3.30 in the afternoon and watch cricket. And one of the real, uh, uh, you know, uh, how do I put it? What are the upsides for an Indian of watching cricket in, on television played in England? Is that it starts at 3.30 in the afternoon for me. So you've done much of a day's work. You don't feel guilty. You know? If it's a test match in India, the whole day goes. If it's a test match in Australia, you have to get up at 3 a.m. Right. So I'd say, you know, and the older one gets, one values and cherishes one's sleeping hours that much more. So it's really nice. And one's working hours too. So I think last year, uh, the test matches in England provided not just for me, but for cricket fans all over the world, a ray of hope and normalcy at the time of this absolutely unprecedented pandemic. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And that was very much my experience of that summer. Um, and I think wise words as well on the, the kind of not taking sport too seriously. I think there's some England football fans who could definitely learn a lesson from what you've yeah. just said and just think to themselves, it's only a game. It's only a game. And yeah. the, um, the enjoyment should come from just watching people who are very good at what they do or playing yourself or being part of the crowd yourself. Because I think that's also something that's, that's really interesting is that experience of being in a crowd 
and you kind of bring that across as well in the in the latest book um, the commonwealth of cricket about growing up and the experience of being a fan but also the experience of being part of a community and can you tell me some more about your memories of cricket in the 60s and 70s and um and how you know how that how that develops a sense of identity for you would you say that it became part of your identity being a cricket fan exactly you know i think uh, watching cricket in in dehradun playing for my school team then coming to bangalore in the summers and then of course watching ranji trophy matches and i think i was fortunate in growing up at a time when there was no live television you know watching cricket on television or growing up watching on television is a kind of a disembodied and solitary experience so to go to a ground uh, with lots of other people uh, and sometimes just to watch a club match or to be playing for your school team and you know chatting to your friend with your colleagues taking a bus to the match or back from the match and i must say the radio also was a very important part of my cricketing education and again unlike television where commentators don't have to explain to you is a charm and a magic about of uh, which is now absent uh, with live television of listening to somebody a thousand miles away describe a match that is being played in front of his eyes but you have to visualize you know uh, so for example uh, uh, gary sobers uh, batting with his cousin david holford at lords in 1966 to save a test match and it was one of my first memories of hearing cricket on the radio uh, against the england fast bowlers for example right or or the famous uh, first world cup final when lily and thompson were trying to score the last 30 or 40 runs against the west indies you know and of course a great 100 that uh, lloyd scored in that match uh, now so i think i've uh, been growing up on television Uh, shrinks your imagination uh radio expands your imagination watching at the ground uh, uh is a kind of emotional experience that can't be captured watching on television and as i said for me cricket is not only test cricket it's not only um you know international cricket it's club cricket university cricket and uh, so that's it uh, and often with friends so i talk in my book about a well known indian journalist suresh menon and how i grew up with him and we watched many test matches together you know whether it's a test match in bangalore or a one day what they batch in bangalore i am often sitting with him so we are talking you know so when tendulkar scored 100 i remember uh, you know suresh and i talk comparing him to gavaskar as to who is the greatest indian batsman ever you know so this obed kumble is getting all those wickets then it brings back memories of the other great leg spinner from bangalore b s chandrasekhar so that kind of collective shared experience uh is very much part of my life in cricket yeah and um, and sort of go on to the other strand of your career so you were talking earlier on about how when you were researching a uh, corner of a foreign field the few archives to consult and so you were relying more on newspaper reports and things like this with your biographies of gandhi which are immense and uh very rich um there's almost a, a an overabundance of um, archive isn't there because gandhi was such a prolific writer and speaker how do you as a historian how do you approach a project that is so colossal um well so- i think uh, i think jeff the 
the, I mean, the first thing I'd say in answer to your question is that you have to be reasonably mature, but not with one foot in your grave to attempt such a project. Mm -hmm. So don't do a huge project even in your 20s or your 30s. When you're in your 40s or early 50s, you have an understanding of the complexity of social life. You have a real feel for archives and uh, you can kind of more expansively uh, plan out your project. You don't have to do it next year to get a promotion. You know, you can take five or 10 years and devil hang the professional consequences. So I think uh, both my uh, history of India, India after Gandhi and my Gandhi biographies were undertaken the, you know, when, when I was in my late 40s and 50s, I mean, I couldn't dream today, I'm 63, of ever undertaking a project of that kind, you know, uh, because I just don't have the energy. Now, one of the things that my cricket research gave me, Jeff, was an appreciation of newspaper archives, which had been underused in biographies of Gandhi. So biographies of Gandhi had relied enormously on his writings, on colonial intelligence reports, but I found that newspapers were an incredibly rich source on what he was doing. For example, uh, to take a very celebrated incident in his life, um, the March to the Sea, the Dundee March, the Salt March of 1930. Now, if you follow newspapers uh, day to day by day as, they, as these newspapers are you know, tracking his, his progress, you do so through different kinds of newspapers. So you can see the pro-Congress newspaper, which is called the Bombay Chronicle, you can see how, how the march is represented in the pro-Congress newspaper, the Bombay Chronicle. You can see how the march is represented in the pro-Raj, the pro-colonial state newspaper, the Times of India, both of which appear in English. Then you can look at the Hindi press, which I also did, and look at a newspaper called Patap and what it was saying, kind of a bottom-up view. And finally, you can look at Reuters and the Associated Press, what the international uh, media is saying about that same epical event. So you get four or five different perspectives from which you can piece together a much richer uh, narrative about that of that march than uh, if you were only looking at the colonial record or at what Gandhi was saying every day, right? So I think uh, in retrospect, researching corner of a foreign field, uh, uh, you know, helped me uh, present a more textured analysis of Gandhi's life because uh, virtually no Gandhi biographer had looked at newspapers. So then I recognized through this book, through writing a cricket history, how valuable newspapers were. So for example, I found for Gandhi's South African phase, a newspaper called the Natal Mercury, uh, which was the major English newspaper in Durban. And no historian had said, hey, let's look at what, what that imperialist newspaper is saying who's organizing protests against racial laws. So I think um, uh, it's, uh, it was this cumulative experience of the other smaller, more focused projects that prepared me for an undertaking as complicated and dare I say it ambitious as a two volume life of God. Well, it was, it's an ambition that's been fulfilled, isn't it? Because uh, the magnificent books are magnificently reviewed as well. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading. I'm going to begin reading uh, the first volume next next week. Um, and I'm very interested in South African history myself and kind of um, until I sort of became a historian myself, I wasn't aware that Gandhi had had such a, a long and significant career in South Africa before he went on to uh, to uh, lead Indian independence. 
Um, so that kind of leads me on uh, to what are you working on now, um, Ram? I mean, you seem to be um, fired up and uh, ready to yeah. go. So I've uh, been working for many years on a book, uh, which I more or less finished, which is about, it's called Renegades. That's the title of the book. And it's about seven Westerners, five British people and two Americans who joined the Indian freedom struggle. So it's seven remarkable individuals who were, you could say, traitors to their race, their religion, and their nationality. And were making this journey in the reverse direction. You know, it's now Indians and Pakistanis go to Britain or go to Canada, or go to America. Here at the height of empire in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were these seven remarkable radicals who came to India, joined the freedom movement, went to prison, uh, sometimes fell in love with Indians, uh, campaigned, for uh, gender equality, environmental protection, freedom of the press, really seven quite exemplary individuals whom I've been fascinated by for a very long time. And uh, I think that apart from my being interested in them, I think their stories also have a contemporary ring because we live in a world marked by xenophobia and jingoism. You know, the Brexiteers in your country, the Hindu supremacists in my country, the white triumphalist in North America, Xi Jinping and his kind of China is the center of the world kind of stuff, right? Russia, Turkey, wherever you go, there's a kind of closing, there's a kind of a xenophobia at work. And these are stories of, as I said, Christians, white Christians, uh, not, not sometimes nominally Christians, but who go and take a stand on behalf of another country, another people, uh, in the interest of a more just and fairer world. That sounds um, fascinating. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. We're not living through the best of times at the moment, or at least it doesn't feel like it now. Um, and one of the other things that, that is one of the challenges for the world at the moment is um, the environmental situation and climate change. And at the beginning of your career, you began writing about environmental history, didn't you? I mean, at a time when I guess it wasn't that fashionable, I mean, yeah. how, how did you become a historian of, uh, of the environment? It, 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 largely by accident, um, uh, uh, Jeff. You know, as I said, I grew up in a town called Dehradun, which is in the Himalayan foothills. And uh, I, when I started my PhD in 1980, uh, there was a very active movement that later became quite iconic called the Chipko movement, the kind of a tree protection movement where the peasants threatened to hug the trees. Chipko means to hug in Hindi. And it was kind of a grassroots environmental movement uh, uh, led by men and women uh, who lived in the villages of, of the central Himalaya. And I wrote my doctoral dissertation on that movement. Then I got interested in kind of comparative environmentalism, you know, looking at the early history of environmentalism in, in your country. And uh, the poets like Wordsworth and John Clare and, um, and others. And then I, so, um, but it was, and then I spent actually the first 15 years of my professional life as an environmental historian. And then I moved towards more political and social history. And though I've re retained my interest as a citizen, and it's now, of course, as you said, with climate change is something we should all be deeply, deeply worried about. If you see what's happened, what happened in Canada and in Alaska with climate change or in Germany most recently. Mm. Um, and I'm not doing any serious research in that field anymore but I keep a close tab on it and I'm in touch with younger scholars who are doing outstanding work. That's wonderful and um, 
before we wrap up, I, I think that you've agreed to give the uh, keynote um, lecture at next year's conference. And I, I really hope that you'll be able to come to, to the UK to give that in person that we'll be over this pandemic by then. Um, but again, um, congratulations on the Howard Milton Award and thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thanks, Jeff. And I also very much look forward to being there at uh, your annual meeting next year. Thank you.